Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today I am here with Sean Howe to discuss one of my favorite topics, nerdy shit. More specifically, Marvel Comics, which Sean has just written a book about. Sean, what is the name of that book? It's uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. And how do you describe the book? Uh, I describe it, well, it depends on if I'm talking to somebody who is a comic book fan. That's the first thing it, that... Uh, that's the first fork in the road, I guess. Well, I feel like if they're listening to this, like, there's a pretty good chance. Not definite, but there's a pretty good chance that, like, they know the difference between Marvel and DC anyway. Okay, so this is this is about how a certain group of people did all the creative work for Marvel and and didn't always get the credit that they deserved is, 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 is maybe... Is maybe the the narrative thread there, and this is like it's, the beginnings of Marvel. Like this is like it's it's a yeah it's a seventy year history of Marvel from nineteen thirty nine to the present. And let's just start at the beginning. How did you choose this topic? I'm assuming you read a lot of comic books growing up. I think what's really interesting to me about the the story of, of Marvel is is the way that you know unlike unlike DC comics, for instance, you know Marvel has this this grand arching narrative where every story is is tied together now doesn't dc so, comics sorry to interrupt you but does, yeah, yeah. doesn't dc comics they have a continuity what, they do that what is they the do that a little bit marvel and the dc they do that continuity. a little bit i think when you know up until maybe the 80s they didn't do that so much i think that they wanted to get a little piece of the marvel magic and they started to pattern a lot of things after after marvel but but the idea that um that everything was like an episode of a big soap opera, I, th- I think really came together under Stanley and Jack Kirby in the 60s at Marvel. Um, and, but it, it, had, it had been there, you know, back to, you know, 1939, 1940, the Submariner and the Human Torch were, uh, were sort of crossing over into each other's titles. And, you know, what that set the stage for was this huge universe of characters that always were bumping into each other. And I, I guess I, I tell people it's like if if Lost, the the show Lost went on for like seventy years, mm. and every character had their own spinoff series, and and all of those you know characters I'd be, crossed I'd watch over seventy years worth of Lost. By you know, the way, I would be into that. And you know, it, it lost its way around season forty two, but by season fifty three, <laughs> right. they're back on track. Right. I would watch that. Right. It's interesting because not to jump too far ahead, but to jump to completely far ahead to the present day. Yeah. Um, you see that happening now in movies, and they're doing that in movies now, and that's something that's never really been done before in movies, where there's like a cinematic universe. I think they even call it the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and so it's interesting to see that that's one of the defining characteristics of Marvel, and now it is, uh, you see it, and now they've translated that to film. Do you think that is why or a reason those movies have been so successful? I think that the whole idea of serial uh, fiction has has really blown up you know obviously in the in the last few years but i, I think that marvel I, I think that the seed for that comes from marvel i think a lot of television showrunners grew up reading comic books and so even though you know there's the victorian novel and you can you can you know trace it all back to that um the the way that kids learn to tell stories or to absorb stories um is is often or used to be often through comic books i I think that's you know probably not true of, of younger generations but the people who are making television shows now um I, I think if you were to talk to them about formative storytelling experiences uh they would put it back to marvel comics yeah this has actually come up on the podcast before but george rr R. martin who wrote uh game of thrones the books and is heavily involved in the tv series uh there's this letter like you can find this image on the internet of a letter that he wrote to fantastic four to stan lee uh back in the 60s about how much he loved it and like um, I see authors all the time citing Stan Lee as like a major influence uh, of their work. So when did you right. start reading comic books? What era was it? Uh, so I was born in 74. So uh, I guess probably looking at them when I was about four and then really hooked by the time I was eight, like really uh, paying attention to what was coming out, you know, next month. Who are your guys? Uh, John Byrne, Frank Miller, uh, oh, I meant Chris Claremont. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because people uh, people have been asking me who my favorite character is, mm-hmm. and I usually just end up saying, you know, as good as these characters are, they're sort of like canvases for the artists. And I think that if you have the right 
you know, the artist and, and writer, um, pretty much any character is going to be interesting. Yeah, I think a great example of that would be Daredevil, who I think when a lot of people hear about Daredevil, when that Daredevil movie came out, um, sounds kind of lame. But uh, because of Frank Miller and all these other people that worked on, he's like a classic, one of the big Marvel characters. Right, right. And and yeah, now, uh, you know, because the movies are what's in people's consciousness, when, when I, you know, end up finally settling on my favorite character, it's Daredevil. And I have to say, well, you know, it's not just like this Ben Affleck movie. That do you like is, the movie? You know, I don't hate that movie. I I do not like that movie. I don't no. hate it, which is an unpopular opinion. I like elements of it, I guess. I heard the director's cut is better, but I've like I've actually seen Daredevil twice, and I was like, I'm sorry, guys, I'm not watching Daredevil a third time. Uh-huh. But I actually kind of like the Daredevil movie. An unpopular opinion to have. So when you started writing this book, was it difficult? Did you find it difficult to write about a visual medium without you know having the having the panels? Uh, well, I I didn't know that there would be no no panels when I mm-hmm. was writing the book. So um, you anticipated having like art to support? I, I did. I, I actually went through a process uh, of, of submitting a, a color, 16 pages of color artwork uh, with, with captions uh, that went through an approval process with Marvel's lawyers. And we settled on an amount that I would pay Marvel. And everything seemed like it was going to... Uh, go smoothly and then I got the contract and essentially I, I would have had to agree to not say anything critical of of Marvel Entertainment anywhere in the book and so I made the decision to not have illustrations yeah this isn't like the Marvel history of Marvel where like this is there's a lot of backroom drama it seems like it, it yeah. must have been a very difficult book to research because there's a lot of he said she said about things that happened 50 years ago there's no record of how did, how did you research the book yeah, well, a lot of interviews. Um, uh, I talked to about 150 people, and I, I also, you know, there's kind of this shadow uh, uh, journalistic record of of the comics industry through fanzines, mm-hmm. and so compiling, you know, just big stacks of of old fan press uh, because obviously, fun. obviously, those people were not being interviewed, you know, in the New York Times every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You know, you've got to you got to find these old mimeographed interviews. Um, you know, sometimes done by you know sixteen year olds, uh, and and that's where you, that's where you end up finding a lot of the the good stuff. You even kind of acknowledge it in the book when you start talking about Fantastic Four number one, which for those that don't know is like it's like gr- the Big Bang for Marvel Comics. It's like really the beginning of what we now recognize as what a comic book is and should be. Um, and you mention in the book like. This much is certain. You say something like, this much is certain. Kirby and Stanley threw together 25 pages, and it came out. Uh, so, like, how do you begin to untangle these things that have just for years been argued about? Like, how, how do you decide what to write about there? And whose side? To, I don't even know if you take sides, but just how to pull that apart. Yeah, I think, I think the, the approach that I wanted to take was, was simply to present every side as much as I could and and let the reader make up their own minds because because once i i i would if i if i took the step of of making a judgment on who was telling the truth um you know that's that's going to filter out a, a lot of important information and mm-hmm. and i think um i i i think that because there's no way of of really knowing you know for instance you know the I guess the controversy maybe at the at the center. Of, yeah, what is that controversy? Of this, uh, 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 maybe maybe the biggest controversy in the history of Marvel would be you know did, did Stan, was Stanley the genius or was Jack Kirby the genius, or or maybe uh, a, a, another another way of saying that would be uh, did Stanley totally swipe all of Jack Kirby's ideas, which would you know I, I think that that's an overstatement, but. Um, but I think it's important to to sort of have that conversation in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I did not want to be the one to uh, uh, you know to pound down the gavel. Well, one reason it's so hard to pull apart is because of this thing called the Marvel method, and this is how they wrote all those great comic books in the '60s. Can you explain what that is? Because even if you know the difference between Marvel and DC, is you might not know how you know the cr- 
seemingly ridiculous method they use to create these comic books. Right, right. So, uh, you know, typically... This does not sound like it should work. It doesn't seem like it should work. Right. I want to so, preface it with that. So typically what would happen in the making of a comic book is the, the writer would come up with a, a script, give it to the artist uh, who would, you know, do about 20 pages and give it to an inker and then a colorist and and a letterer and uh and then it would you know go out the door and with marvel what happened was uh stan lee would start just feeding you know maybe a a couple sentences of of something to an artist the artist would then draw out this story and and in doing so would would uh create the pacing and and uh the subplots and introduce characters which is an important piece of writing a comic book it's like uh directing a movie almost it's like directing a movie right um it's it's like uh it's it's like the what Woody Allen did with what's up Tiger Lily mm-hmm. is 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 what Stan Lee ended up doing which is which is you get all these images and then you kind of write some dialogue to to go over those images so they would so, together decide on a script uh jack kirby whoever the artist was but usually jack kirby in these early days would draw it and then they would add the lines on top of that based on the drawings which i think is i guess one reason it's so difficult to pull apart exactly who is responsible for what right right and and even you know uh, i i guess i said i think i said earlier that stanley would feed them an idea which even even that is is hard to to really say for sure i think in in some instances you know, the artist would just, you know, completely take the reins and, and Stan Lee would have nothing to do with it until, you know, it came back to him as a, you know, 20 pages of, of comic book art. Um, and that that's what actually happened with Steve Ditko uh, for the last year or so on, on Spider-Man. So when you have like Gwen Stacy, who, you know, now everyone knows as uh, Emma Stone, mm-hmm. um, you know, she was introduced in a comic book that that Stan Lee had nothing to do with until, you know, he got those pages on his desk and there she was. There's also a piece in the book about Gwen Stacy's probably, I guess this is like a spoiler for like the Spider-Man movie that's coming out in two years. But uh, Gwen <laughs> Stacy, one of the most famous deaths in comic books, presumably they're going to kill her off in the movies just because uh, she's like so linked to her dying in the comic books. And there's actually a piece of the book where you talk about um, how Stan Lee didn't want to kill her. And now it's remembered as like this great story. Do you think that's something where Stanley and even there's you have him on the record like apologizing for it at comic book conventions? Is that something where in retrospect he would admit he was wrong and say that she needed to die? I I don't know actually. Um, I I think that uh, he I I feel like he knows that he's on the record uh, attacking the idea. So I don't think he would do like a a, a double reverse mm-hmm. on, on himself. Um, but uh, it, it clearly was the right it was the right path for that that character. It was a really resonant story. Yeah, it's and, one of the most famous comic book stories of all time. Now, you know, people didn't really care that much about Gwen Stacy before she died. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, people, kids were heartbroken, and you know, they they were traumatized by by her, by her death. But I, I I think that you know, I don't think that they were as invested before that as, as she, they thought they were. Is she alive now? I uh, no, I she's, don't. I don't think so. She's she's, you know, she she came back in the nineties, mm-hmm. uh, or or she came back a few years after that uh, as a clone, and then uh, as they will, yeah, as they will, um, uh, at you know Stanley's uh, insistence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the whole reason that that the the Spider Man cloning ever began was was because uh, Stanley insisted that Gwen Stacy come back for a while. And for those that don't know, the Spider-Man cloning is probably maybe the worst remembered story in the history of Marvel. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I yeah. think it's like really the low point. It's what, in the 90s? Yeah, the, the mid-90s. Uh, it was a, a clone of, of Spider-Man uh, named Ben Riley, or, or rather the, the Peter Parker clone was named Ben Riley, And uh, it was it just became this, this huge, tangled mess of a story. Uh, and... And, you know, I talk a little bit about the behind the scenes of that in the book uh, where nobody really knew how to untangle the mess. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it became a little bit of an office politics battle uh, behind the scenes. So I want to go back to the Marvel method real quick because I'm fascinated by it. 
Why do you think that worked? I mean, it seems like the most counterintuitive way to create something that I could imagine. And yet, it produced not just good comic books, but, like, the best comic books of all time. Like, these characters were still the most popular characters in the world, uh, what, 40, 50 years later? Yeah, it, it, it worked in—it worked because the guys who were doing the heavy lifting were so good at what they did. I mean— And that's Jack Kirby? And and that's Jack Kirby, and that's Steve Ditko. And in a way, it's—you know, it's also Stan Lee. I—you know, uh, there's, there's become— a, a, a narrative that, that some people subscribe to that Stanley really just all he did was exploit and get in the way of the genius of Jack Kirby, which I, is not something that I that I believe. I think that uh, that Stanley was was a really brilliant talent scout and art director and uh, and writer of dialogue. And I, you know, something of a marketing genius too. Like the idea that he be, he himself became a character in the back of the comics was like. Not an you know not something you would necessarily expect, and I think that's a large reason that he became and Marvel Comics became like this congealed thing. Right? How how many other pieces of entertainment can you think of where you know the like a kid consuming the entertainment it spends a lot of the time thinking like, wow, what a great office this would be to work at. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't think that that's really the case of uh, anything else. You know, you you don't. You don't go to like Star Wars movies and and think, wow, to, you know, to be an editor at like, you know, George Lucas's ranch must be the best. Yeah, you know, uh, but but with with Marvel comics, they somehow sold uh, the readers on the idea that the most fun place in the Marvel universe was something called the bullpen, uh, which didn't actually even really exist at the time. Um, you know, it was freelancers who would drop off their work and then a couple of production people hanging out. But um, but to read the letters pages, you would think that it was just this, you know, elves factory of of hijinks. Do you read a lot of these old comic books in researching the book? I, I reread a lot of comic books. In Were they research. good? Because you, you didn't seem thrilled with Fantastic Four, number one, again. Like it's, one of the most, probably maybe the most important comic in the history of Marvel comics, maybe in the history of all comics, uh, and I think you called it like sh- a sh- uh, you said it was shambling. I believe like it doesn't right. necessarily hold up. Is that correct? Uh, it's not very good. Yeah. I, I, I mean, have you read it since? No, I mean, I know. Or ever? No, I've yeah. never read it. I've never read it. I don't know that I've read much '60s. I'm sure I've seen something yeah. at some point, but like I've certainly never sat down like a big hardcover like classic Spider-Man book and like read a lot of '60s Spider-Man. So it was interesting to hear a lot about that, but they're not good. They're not, they don't hold up. Do you see? Do you see like the uh, the seeds of greatness in them? I, I in retrospect, you 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 can, but I I think you know it's only because you. you I mean, I'm just talking of that one one issue. Uh, you know, they it improved pretty quickly after that, but. Uh, you know, it's like listening to. Have you ever heard the Beatles recording of "My Bonnie"? No, uh, I've not. You know, just like it's it's just uh, it, there. There was a while before the Beatles, you know, were really you know doing good stuff in the studio. But Fantastic Four yeah. also was in Stanley's first comic book. I actually was surprised to learn that he's already thirty eight when um, Fantastic Four came out. He's almost forty, right? And I th- that really surprised me because. Um, I mean, what was he doing before that? He was working in comic books, but he wasn't uh, Stan Lee yet. Well, you know, in fact, he was Stan Lee in that in that he he had been born uh, Stanley Lieber and had legally changed his name to to Stan Lee. But uh, uh, he, he Stan Lee is is a you know basically a persona he created to to be like his 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 writer name. Uh, uh, his comic book writer name, and then if if he ever got around to writing a novel like he wanted to, he would he would go back to Stanley Lieber for that. But but Stan Lee uh, had been at Marvel Comics for twenty years when Fantastic Four uh, came out. He had been the editor in chief, uh, kind of by default uh, because his uh, his cousin was married to the publisher of of Marvel Comics. And when uh, the previous editor left Marvel, uh, Stan Lee, who had gotten a job as an office boy there, uh, just you know stepped into the vacuum mm-hmm. and and didn't didn't leave for for you know twenty years. Uh, you know, when, when Fantastic Four 
came out and and things started to roll, uh, you know, then then he decided, you know, maybe this is a pretty good gig after all. So what was it about Fantastic Four number one that makes it such a milestone? What's so revolutionary about it? There's not much that's revolutionary about it. Is is the funny thing? Um, it it uh, it was it was quickly a, a success, and and for 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 reasons that I still find hard to fathom. I mean, it, what what really sets it apart from other comic books of the time mm-hmm. is is literally just how crude it is. Um, you know, you can you can look where uh, there was there was a. DC comic called Challengers of the Unknown, and you can see how a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that Jack Kirby had done earlier in Challengers of the Unknown, uh, he was just kind of you know putting into Fantastic Four uh, once again. Um, so so even the concepts weren't weren't really original. Um, but what started to happen as Fantastic Four went on was you started to see these characters being much different than the uh, truth justice in the american way uh icons of of dc so whereas superman and batman at the time and wonder woman were all really noble and boring the fantastic four were you know kind of this family unit that were always bickering and and you know threatening to punch each other out do you think they knew what they were doing was going to be so revolutionary that like this idea of flawed heroes would become, um, you know, again, the template for comic books for the next uh, few decades. I don't think so. I I mean, and one of the, one of the ways that you can tell that is, is because, you know, nobody saved like the scripts for Mm, for those comic books and, and had a hard time remembering the details years later. Uh, it was really just, you know, it was one of about, uh, you know, probably, probably eight comics that, that, they put out that month and he goes the run that starts after fantastic four is insane um right after fantastic four i believe there was like thor or no hulk right after fantastic four they came up with hulk then ant-man well you know he's still around all right right um then thor uh then the x-men then the avengers just like one after another they like top five media properties of today like they're just coming out with them oh and then spider-man of course right how long was it like before spider-man was you know spider-man like he was the most until everyone knew who Spider-Man was. How long does that take? Uh, you know, so Spider-Man uh, was introduced in 1962, and I think probably by 65, he was really a sensation. That's incredible, yeah. because it's hard to imagine a new comic book coming out. You know, I think, like, the most recent comic book character that, like, is generally known by the mainstream public is probably Wolverine, who's, like, 30 years old now, you know? Um, 40. Maybe 40. Maybe Spawn was pushing it a yeah. little, like, but not really. Um, so the idea that like a combo character would come out and then two years later everyone know who it is, is is incredible. Was that the case with all of these early Marvel co- books? Yeah, what happened was uh, Stan Lee realized that you know what he could do is introduce uh, you know Spider Man into an issue of Fantastic Four or you know bring the Hulk into an issue of Fantastic Four, and so uh, that's serving two purposes. You've got you, you've got the beginning of this really complicated you know, er storyline going on. Mm-hmm. But then you've also got, um, you know, cross, cross marketing for your characters. And so by about 1965, uh, if somebody was reading Spider-Man, they couldn't help but be aware of, you know, the Hulk and the Avengers and probably the X-Men, although the X-Men were, uh, were they never really actually caught on until, until years later. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was really about, uh, you know the Marvel brand by that time, um, and and anything that they touched seemed to be old. It's incredible that they weren't just like the first modern superhero comics, but they're also the best characters. You think those are related? Yes, I mean, I mean, I guess the they're they became the modern superhero characters just because they, they you know they stood out. If they hadn't if they hadn't been breaking a mold, I, I guess you know there there'd be no uh, reason to to date. Uh, you know, comic book history to you know, to that as a revolution. The book really made me realize that Stanley. Obviously, I know Stanley is everyone knows who Stanley is, but I don't know. I just kind of know him as like a personality. Like I know he created all these characters, um, and I knew he was well respected. But I didn't realize just like what a master author he is. Just like how far his empire spread and how uh, and how much he did. What was it that made him so good? Well, he he is just a real 
salesman <laughs> in 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 it's not every, all yeah that's interesting it's not mm-hmm. all i mean he's good he's a good writer but it's not just that there's like a marketing angle to it and there's a business angle to it and all the, and all those things too yeah i i mean i i think that i think that in his writing i think there's a really uh, a really appealing humanist streak that that comes through he's he's got a kind of a corny sense of humor but uh he mastered this this uh this tone of self-deprecation that you know works really well for a lot of people um and so so even as as you know the jokes are corny you're you're kind of uh indulging him happily but you know he he was really uh he was a really he he says he's not a smart businessman and in some ways he he has not been a smart businessman in terms of you know maybe just the way he's handled his own contracts and and things like that but in terms of um in terms of speaking to an audience and knowing, having having a, a good sense of what that audience wants, uh, he's he's brilliant. Um, you know, he used to have fights with Steve Ditko because uh, the, the Spider-Man artist, uh, because Steve Ditko thought that Stanley would would bend everything to what you know the audience wanted too much of the time, mm-hmm. and and you know it it became this thing where um, you know letter writers were essentially voting on on where spider-man you know would would go uh, uh where, where the title would go and and steve ditko i, I think that insulted his, his his artistic sensibilities and maybe his you know his ayn randian values as well yeah it was interesting yeah. to read how there's a lot of that in the early spider-man comic books is stan lee mega rich does he like own anything you know himself does he like have a piece of the avengers He's he, probably not as rich as you assume the guy who created Spider-Man, the X-Men, Thor, et cetera, et cetera, would be. That's true. He's probably, he probably has more money than anyone listening to this right now. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I mean, he's, you know, he's certainly a multimillionaire. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he had a contract for a while with Marvel that gave him a big piece uh, of the movies. Um, oh, interesting. And, and that was, uh, and then, and then there was a lawsuit, and in the settlement, I th- I think that was that was actually voided. But he got a he got a pretty good payday. You keep I showing up for the cameos. You must not be too upset. Yeah, yeah. And it's I, interesting to read. It feels like these movies are like really, um, you know, something he had been wanting to do for years. Like you read about him trying to get him off the ground in the '60s and the '70s. He must be so happy to see it like really finally clicking, and like the Avengers being the best move, the biggest movie of the year, if not necessarily the best, but maybe the best too. Yeah, I think I think he was always more taken with Hollywood than he was with comic books. I mean, from the time he was a little kid, and he would he would you know sneak out and go to see westerns and and dream about you know being one of those matinee idols, uh, and and then comic books kind of happened to come along. But um, yeah, I, I I found uh, uh, this recording of of him talking to a friend in the late '60s, sort of a you know, a, a, just a very candid conversation uh, where Stanley is talking about how if if he wasn't uh, if this wasn't his job, you know, he would never read comic books. You know, he didn't understand why people did, mm-hmm. which I, I thought was a really surprising thing to read. Yeah, he's like synonymous with the media. Yeah, and he's a re- he's, been, he's been a really good ambassador uh, mm-hmm, yeah. for, for the medium as well. I mean, w- you know, regardless of of how much he really, uh, you know would would love to read comic books in his own time he was really uh important for for bringing comic books back to the extent that they did in, you know in the, in the culture did he ever write a book i remember he wrote a screenplay at some point but right, did he ever right. did he ever write a novel he never did hmm, no that's interesting and i asked him if if he regretted that and mm-hmm. and he he said he said no that's you know, I I kind of feel like it would be hard to imagine Stanley expressing regret over anything. Actually, he he's he's, he's so positive. He's so positive. <laughs> what was it like talking to him? Was it was he forthcoming about this history? I didn't talk to him as as much as I had hoped. But you know, talking to him a little bit is like it's a little bit like talking to maybe Ronald Reagan in 1988 about you know the Iran Contra affair or something. Like first of all, he's on message. Mm-hmm. All the time, yeah. And, he's still employed by Marvel. And second of all, he's he's uh, he doesn't have a very good memory. Mm-hmm. So um, between those two things, uh, you know, there's there's not a lot to to sort of squeeze out of him. Um, but what it, what it's like to talk to him is is like it's, it's like talking to like a long lost 
like uncle or something because his voice is something if you if you grew up you know watching any of the cartoons that he narrated or for a few generations of, of readers at least you know his his the actual sound of his voice is very very familiar yeah and it's and it's something that it's strange to to hear that voice saying your name directly mm-hmm. you know um it's it's a it's a nice warm childhood feeling that you, that you get this is something of a sidetrack, but I have to bring it up. Possibly my favorite nugget that I learned in the book, my favorite fun fact, was that at some point they were going to make a Silver Surfer movie starring Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. You are in my apartment. You are sitting underneath my Beach Boys poster. I love the Beach Boys. What? What? What was I, that? I wish I wish I knew more about that. Because I, I Googled it, and I only found references to your book. Like, other people like me, like, I just read this book, and it said there was going to be a Dennis Wilson Silver Surfer movie. Yeah, there was a, there was a newspaper report at the time that, that mentioned that among... You know, there, was a, there was a guy named Steve Lemberg, who was a, uh, a, like a rock show promoter. I think mm-hmm. he worked for Bill Graham or something. And, uh, and he licensed a bunch of the characters uh, in the early 70s. And he wanted to do like, uh, you know, just rock operas of everything. And, and one of the projects that he had in mind was apparently, you know, I guess it would have been like Dennis Wilson's follow up to Tulane Blacktop or something. You yeah. Know? It would have been a really, really weird, weird movie. I love hearing about like, you know, nerdiness has become so mainstream today that I love whatever I read about like old school nerdiness when it was like really uncool and like you were really a leper if you were yeah. like super into comic books. I find those people, you know, they paved the way for me to be having this podcast today, for you to write this book. Uh, I love reading about, like, the first Comic-Con and the old Comic-Cons. Well, what was that scene like? Because, you know, now if you go to Comic-Con, it's like Kristen Stewart, and she's premiering Twilight. Yeah, there's there's something that's really beautiful about those old, the idea of those old comic conventions where it's really just actually about the comic books. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, especially now to look at how Hollywood has totally co-opted the you know the the San Diego Comic Con in particular, mm-hmm. um, but but almost all comic conventions have as much to do with you know getting you know B movie character actors you know signing memorabilia yeah, and, sure. and stuff like that. Um, pro wrestlers, a lot of pro wrestlers, pro wrestlers, sometimes porn stars, which mm-hmm. I, I feel like is a little bit a, a little bit icky collision to have yeah, but to like, have like you know little you know kids and porn stars. <laughs> You know, comic book fans, they have many interests. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, yeah, there was there was a time where in the early 70s, you could uh, you, you could corner Jack Kirby, you know, outside the the hotel pool and he would he would give you an audience, you know. So um, what, what, what did they do there? Like today, if you go to Comic-Con, you walk around, I guess you buy and sell comic books, maybe um, you hear you go to panels. Was it the same type of thing then? Yeah. I, have you have you been to a comic convention? I've been to New York. I've not been to San Diego. OK, the, you've been to the big New York mm-hmm. Comic-Con. Yeah, the Javits Center. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's 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 hard to uh, I, I guess I guess. Yes. In, in that you walk around and go to panels and there are comic books for sale. I, that's true. But if if you think about just the, like the recirculating air of the Javits Center, or if you think about um, just the constant like explosions of video games, mm-hmm. or you think about all of the um, you know all of the booth girls uh, who are you know dressed up and, and trying to get your attention and trying to get your attention to buy some video game, mm-hmm. and then and then you 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 erase all of that stuff, and then you've you've just got kind of I, I guess you keep the fluorescent lighting. I guess that was probably yeah. always so it's the same always thing, just there. smaller but and like not as shiny. Smaller and not as shiny, and just homier. I, I guess I don't know. I'm, I'm now. I'm just getting nostalgic for something I wasn't even around right, for. Right. So I don't know. But I like the idea of people gathering to talk about a particular art form, and and I like the idea that it's organized. You know, it used to be organized by fans. That's that's the biggest difference, I think. Mm. You know, and now it's it's big business. Were there any women at those comic cons? Do you there talk some. to anyone? Yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, I, and they were they were. Uh, you know, generally pretty popular. You know, I imagine they were um, <laughs> not unlike. And there's many women at Comic Con today. The you know the ratio is still not totally balanced. There's still Comic Con's like the only place where there's a long line outside the men's room and not the women's. You know, right? And when was the first Comic Con? I think the first San Diego Comic Con was was maybe seventy, maybe sixty four was was the first comic convention. And when was Fantastic Four number one? 
61. Okay, so this is like really like the dawn of comics. Yeah, and St- Steve Ditko was, you know, who's who's now sort of, you know, he's he's labeled a recluse usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he went to that first comic convention and apparently he had such a terrible, <laughs> terrible time <laughs> interacting with fans that he... He said he would, he would never do it again. It's interesting that the continuity was such a big part. You also talk about in the book, there was uh, this box, like a plastic box that they used to keep the continuity straight, like with index cards in it. I want to know everything about that box. Well, I think it was it was just index cards, you know, like you said, with uh, each each one would have the name of a character. And, you know, there, there were like little dossiers on, on uh, where the character had appeared and what their powers were. And, uh, you know, that's something, there's a writer named David Anthony Kraft who told me about that. And, uh, and I actually got an email from Roy Thomas, who was the editor in chief at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, well, I don't, I don't remember that. Uh, I don't remember a box like that. And so, uh, so I, I, I guess I'll try to get to the, the bottom of that, but apparently it's a controversial concept. Do you know if there's a modern day equivalent? Because I know at Lucasfilm, there is someone whose full-time job is like keeping track of the Star Wars continuity, uh, which between the millions of cartoons and books and comic books and such, and now the upcoming movies, uh, is apparently a full-time job. Also, his title is Holocron Keeper. <laughs> Do they still have someone there who just like worries about that? And they're like, oh, no, 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 that's not where Dazzler's from. I, I think not a full-time job, but I, th- I think that they have a few editors who are really good at that and they've they've just sort of internalized that knowledge and skill we were saying that that's in the movies now but you also see that on tv like the idea of a tight continuity like i guess game of thrones is based on a book but is a great example of like oh sure breaking bad and the wire and sopranos and even Mad Men. even Mad Men is uh is like a marvel comic how so <laughs> that way well i'm just in that season five is going to be a lot different than season one and there are characters who have you know if not died they've you know they've been fired from the firm and they just and then they just disappear for a while um and and you know i I, it's it's really just simply that there are character arcs and story arcs uh you know and whereas you know 30 years ago like you you wouldn't you wouldn't watch an episode of quincy and be like oh i i don't i didn't see the one before this i'm totally lost yeah. yeah, well, I think the technology is a large reason why. You know, we have DVDs and streaming and, like, all these ways. to Like, if you missed an episode of Quincy, like, you had to wait six months till they ran it. And then if you missed it then, you were just never going to see that episode. And now you use a million ways to catch up. So it's interesting to see how, like, the technology has almost caught up to this bare-bones comic book form. The Marvel characters, um, they kind of have, like, a-, a living continuity almost, where, like, the continuity can be revised based on... You know how fans react to certain stories. Like I think the Clone Saga is almost certainly disavowed by now. But there's, you know, when you read about um, the first incarnations of some of these characters, they're very different than what we know now. Like Thor used to have a secret identity. How do you think that process works? Like how do they? How does Don Blake, who was Thor's secret identity, how does he eventually no longer become part of the mythos? Those are weird things because it's just at the same time that there is this this continuity we've been talking about. There's also this constant. It's it's not quite rebooting, but but it's it's kind of um, selective memory, I guess. Yeah. Well, like Iron Man, um, when he was originally was he in World War Two when he built the he was Iron, in Vietnam. He was in Vietnam, and now you see when they update the story, he's in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever. So these things like have to be updated just to stay current. But why do you think some things stick and some don't? Like who makes those decisions? I think it's probably just a variety of of. Of, of different reasons for that i think one of the interesting things to me is that spider-man uh who's you know arguably their their most visible sure. property is the one who's changed the most how so like what is different about spider-man now than well he's not a teenager mm-hmm. you know he grew up a little he, he 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 went through college and grad school and he got married um he he had a baby briefly but uh uh or I, I should I believe, say, there I believe was a, it was forfeited in a deal with a demon of some kind. Right, right. Um, but yeah, that's it. Spider Man like but, grew up, which I don't know. Batman Spider- doesn't really. Spider Man hasn't been a teenager again. You know, unlike all those other characters, he's never really reverted back to hmm. his totally initial state. But uh, then they do something like Ultimate Spider Man, which is a spinoff and a Scott comic book fan. Like I, I'm just hearing as someone who doesn't follow this shit. He's <laughs> like listening to me. Uh, 
Ultimate Spider-Man, which is a spinoff. It takes place in a different continuity where Spider-Man is a teenager, and it's like telling the story of Spider-Man as a teenager, updated. He's like a blogger instead of a... He works at a blog instead of a newspaper and that kind of thing. And, you know, updating it for modern times, telling those stories again, putting twists on, on classic elements of the story. So they're kind of having their cake and eating it, too, in a way, because there's right. two, at least two that I know of Spider-Man continuities. There's probably... No less than five Spider-Man continuities that I'm... Uh, There's way more, actually. Yeah. 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 But those are the two of the big ones, anyway. So Marvel characters do grow up. Is Spider-Man eventually going to be old? No, I, I think I think that marriage was, was when they realized they'd gone too far. And they undid the marriage. They undid recently, the marriage. Again, with this deal with Satan. Or they, Fisto, they, he, as it were. I think he got to keep his master's degree. I, I don't think they took that away from him. So, mm-hmm. so he'll, he'll always be like that perpetual... You know, post grad. What about some of the Peter other Parker. characters like uh, Hulk or Thor? They they've changed too, haven't they? Yeah, I, I I mean to be honest with you, I haven't really kept up on the latest uh, developments with those characters. And I know Iron Man has uh, Iron Man potentially could always have a goatee now, thanks yeah, to oh definitely he's thanks to the movie. Have the goatee, I mean yeah. that's something that you would not have expected yeah. five years ago. Certainly, everyone's going to expect uh, Tony Stark to look like Robert Downey Jr. for the foreseeable future. But then what do they do? Like, someday Robert Downey Jr. is not going to play Iron Man anymore. That's going to happen, and they're not right. going to want to stop making Iron Man movies. Right. Well, you think they have to, like, reboot the cinematic universe, too? I mean, I guess they, they've already done that with Spider-Man, right? I guess they did, but that one, Spider-Man, oh, God, Spider-Man's, like, in a different movie continuity. Like, Spider-Man isn't in the same world as the Avengers and Thor because of some rights thing. He's in a different, he's, uh, and same with X-Men. X-Men right. are in their own little corner of the Marvel movie world. You know, how do you keep updating those? How do you keep that fresh? Hopefully, they won't have to keep dealing with that, you know, at a, at a rapid rate. I, I think one thing that's that's been really interesting to watch is, for, for comic book fans, you know, it's always been this, there's been kind of a bone of contention of, you know, they make a movie and they, they change stuff in the movie and they didn't, they don't, they feel like they don't get it right, you know. Um, but now the movies are the canon, you know, mm-hmm. that's, if you ask you know, the average person on the street, you know, what does Iron Man look like? Like you said, you know, it's Robert Downey Jr. And I heard so, some people when the new Spider-Man movie came out, they were like, oh, that's weird that he built a web shooter on his hand. Like he has like a machine on his wrist that shoots webs as opposed to like it being a biological function, like a little anus on his wrist. Uh, but that's actually how <laughs> right. it was forever in the comic books. And Sam Raimi was the one that changed it. And now they changed it back. Right. But but now what I think you're starting to see is the comic books, you know, having to bend to the, to the waves of the movies. Uh, it's a total, total reversal of, of what it was like for years and years and years. It seems like Marvel was just bought for an enormous amount of money by Disney. But it seems like uh, the comic books are really like uh, a factory or like a farm to like seed these ideas that will be the movies. And that's where the real money is. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I, I, you the comic know, books are like a loss leader to come up with these characters. Except they're not a loss leader. It would be more interesting if they were a loss leader. They would take more chances. Um, you know, the, the way that, that the corporate structure is, is built right now and their, their business model is that all the comics have to, they have to be profitable on their own terms. Oh, really? So, um, is that at Marvel and DC? I don't believe it's true for DC. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been true for Marvel for the last maybe 10 or 15 years. Uh, if it was a loss, if, if there were loss leaders, then you could, you could have some kind of crazy new concept and they would just put that out as like research and development. A, a friend of mine, uh, actually had a pretty good analogy which is if you look at marvel entertainment as like this big fancy restaurant every night is you know totally packed marvel comics the publishing division is like a cigarette machine in the lobby of the restaurant and every once in a while the owners like shake it loose and see right. what kind of change comes out it's not just the movies it's the toys the video games i bet all those things are more profitable than the, yeah uh, the, the funny books yeah I mean, the the merchandising just totally dwarfs a lot of, especially in these pre-Fantastic Four days, there's a lot of different eras and a lot of like fads almost in comic books. You know, westerns are big, then horror comics, then um, romance or whatever. But after Fantastic Four, it's pretty much superheroes. Comic books are synonymous with superheroes to this day. Why did superheroes stick? Well, there was all, there was also the Batman movie in 1966, which really kind of pounded the nails in the coffin of other genres i think the adam west uh batman movie the adam just, west batman movie the greatest batman or, or, movie of all time or, or tv show i guess but uh um, the movie too though there's a movie too oh was it a theatrical i believe so yeah, i have yeah. two copies yeah. of it on dvd uh, okay good good uh i would be really psyched if they started bringing back romance comics a recurring theme in the book is that everyone is all of a sudden worried that comic books are tanking and like starts 
feeling around for a new job. Like, everyone seems perpetually ready for the comic book industry to explode. Uh, is that still true? Do you think that they're still worried about it? Yeah, I, I just by dint of the the fact that it's part of publishing it, mm-hmm. it right now is is a reason to worry about it. Uh, I think they have good good reason to worry about it. And it, I don't think the comic book industry will ever totally go away, but uh, they're they're not uh, hiring you know huge huge numbers of people these days. You think they're they're never really going away? I don't think so. I mean, I mean, very few art forms really you know totally totally vanish and i and i don't i don't even necessarily think that that they will get much smaller than they already are they're, they're really they sell a fraction of what they were selling yeah, like 20 years ago how many copies does amazing spider-man sell every month do you yeah have a, do you have a ballpark it's like a hundred thousand is it a million i wouldn't even know uh it is it is i'm gonna guess it's between you know 50 and a hundred thousand that's really not that much as i'm saying that i'm thinking that's probably high mm-hmm. um Whereas it was selling like you know a million twenty years ago, do you think going digital is going to be a major shift for Marvel at all? Sure, I mean it, I guess it has been all, already, you know, to a degree. I, I think you know hopefully hopefully people will you know continue wanting to read. I, I don't know. I, again, I feel like my old codgerness is kind of coming out. I I I'm such a like sucker for being able to hold a. A page, yeah, but I think it'll maybe will be like records. They still sell records, and you can go buy a record if you want. But like, you know, it's most people are happy enough with the MP3 or getting it from iTunes or whatever it is. Like, I can't imagine they're going to stop publishing Spider-Man comics ever in our lifetime. But I can imagine them being harder to find, them being more of like a boutique item. Yeah, lots of chaos at Marvel over the years. Lots of chaos at Marvel. Mm-hmm. Lots of discrepancies. Was it the same at DC? Yeah, I don't know if it was just as chaotic, but but there was there was definitely. You know, bloodletting and and office politics, and I think Marvel maybe got the lion's share of outsized characters in the editorial offices, but DC has has plenty of skeletons in the closet too. Yeah, and they come up. I mean, a big one, which is another book about, is uh, Joe Schuster and the creation of Superman and him being screwed out of that. Yeah, and he pops up in your book too. Yeah, because he, he worked for Marvel. Right, right. Uh, uh, was it? It was it Jerry Siegel actually was oh. was was rather mm-hmm. um, uh, the other the other Superman creator right right and yeah he he sort of uh, found himself doing proofreading at Marvel in the in the late nineteen sixties and, and and you know it's sort of a sad image of of the guy who who co created Superman is just anonymously bent over proofreading yeah. at the competition's offices well now that Marvel's owned by Disney do you think that's a game changer for the company. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, Marvel will never go away, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, Which is kinda, it's kind of like, I don't love, like, when big companies get bigger, just as a, a rule of thumb. And, you know, Disney owns Star Wars, they own the Muppets, they're setting up the best crossover of all time. But uh, it is somewhat reassuring to know that, like, you know, the Spider-Man rights are never going to, he's never going to really go away. Yeah. It's in, the, it's in the fine care of the people at Disney. Yeah, I I, uh, I mean, I, I think I think in a way it's it's... Yeah, it, it could go. It could go in a lot of different directions, but I, I, I do think that it's it's good for um, just the the viability of of the company. That there's there have been so many ways in which Marvel's been endangered over the years, mm-hmm. and and it's hard to imagine that like the Walt Disney Company is going to just tank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. They're they're set up to go for a while. Do you think anything has to change at Marvel for it to exist under Disney? Uh. I, I think just by degrees. I don't. I don't think there's any huge qualitative shift in the way that they they do things. I mean, it was it was already uh, Ike Perlmutter who who owned Marvel uh, for the last ten years bef- before sold before he sold it to Disney. You know, he was already sort of ruling it with an iron fist, and and I think that you know that was probably a good preparation for how how Disney would would do it. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's. I mean, it's it's just it's a very corporate place. Well, I love the book. I love, like, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of these things. Like like I said, I know who Stan Lee is, but I didn't know just how much he had contributed not only to Marvel Comics, which sounds silly because he's synonymous with Marvel Comics, but I didn't realize, you know, reading about that initial run of all, all these characters they created in a row, it's really exciting. It's really interesting. How can people read the book? You know, uh, I have a website, seanhow.com, mm-hmm. and so if there's actually a, a link to take you to uh, your choice of booksellers. 
rather than just sending you straight to Amazon. Mm-hmm. But it's also you can get it electronically. It's on. Is it on Kindle? I read it on iBooks. Yeah, it's it's on pretty much all the all the major eBooks, and uh, you know, it hopefully it's it's at your local bookstore. That would be the, that would be my favorite way for people to find the book. Are you still reading comic books now that the book is done? Are you like picking up anything monthly? You know, there's a Hawkeye comic book that's pretty I've great. I've heard. I might have to check that out. I've heard that's really good. It, it is really good. Yeah. You, you should. You that's should. cool. Who's yeah. drawing it? Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Okay. David, uh, AJA is oh, the yeah, last yeah, name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aha, maybe? Maybe. Aja? I think that's also a Steely Dan album. We'll it's cut a, that it's part It's a good out. Steely Dan <laughs> <laughs> um, Cool. Well, Sean, thanks so much for uh, writing the book. Loved oh. it and coming and talking today. Thank you. Okay, everybody, that is it for this week's Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. Next week, at long last, I will finally be posting the live Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show we recorded at NY PodFest a few weeks ago. I know I've been hyping it for a while, but I am excited that everyone will finally be able to listen. You may recall me mentioning that it involves a lot of arguing about video games. Here is what it's going to sound like. My pick for most tragic game is Nintendogs. I'm holding up the card. Like, not only can you guys not see it, there's people listening on headphones, like on a treadmill on this subway. Imagine how little they can see it. Nintendogs is my pick for most tragic game. <laughs> and it's not because it's like the number four selling game of all time. Like, Nintendogs has sold more copies than every Zelda game combined. That alone would make it the most tragic game of all time. But I think what's so sad about Nintendogs is the idea of a child playing it instead of having an actual dog. Like, there's some <laughs> legitimate <laughs> tragedy and sadness there that they, that they have love to give, and they're putting it into, like, a very glorified Tamagotchi. And I know the plot of Mist is very sad. It's very tragic. I couldn't follow it, but it sounds very sad. But uh, Nintendogs has no plot. The plot is that uh, you, are, you can't have a real dog. That's the plot of the game. And then, like, instead you were given a Nintendo DS. And uh, as much as I love video games, nothing is more tragic than that. As always, that new episode will be up on Tuesday. And don't forget that on Wednesdays, on every other Wednesday, there are new episodes of Bleep Bloop. This is one of those Wednesdays with a new episode, so check that out at collegehumor.com slash bleepbloop. I will keep you posted about new bleep bloops, new Jeffrey Freeman shows, and, you know, pretty much anything else I'm working on if you follow me on Twitter, where I am at Jeff Rubin Show. If you go to my Tumblr at jeffrubinjeffrubin.com, where, by the way, there is also a sign-up for a mailing list if you want to get emails when there's new uh, episodes of the podcast. Of course, there is also the Facebook fan page and youtube.com slash jeffrubinjeffrubin. Thank you so much for listening. Go check out Sean's book, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. But for now, bye.